Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Today we have a special program, something to do with coronavirus, taking a look at it in slightly different ways. First up, we have the president of Howard University, one of the great American, African-American universities in Washington, D.C., and he is going to talk about how the virus has impacted the university and the larger African-American community. And then we take the lessons of the, of the virus and we ask two experts on the environment. They are Matthew Banks and Jan Brins from Guidehouse, a consultancy, how utilities and industrial companies are going to handle the lessons coming from what some people have called the pause. It's a great show, an interesting show, somewhat different. I think you will enjoy it. You have put out a piece of paper, a letter to the school, to the community, which is beautiful in its writing. I have it right here in front of me. Indeed, it's Churchillian and some of its wonderful language, and I'm going to read just one little piece. The bison, which is the, the name that students at Howard use for themselves, bison, it has an historical connotation going back to the 1920s, but what you say is, I am reminded time and time again, that is what bison do. We address challenges head on and exemplify equanimity under duress. I think that is a beautiful phrase. We address challenges head on and exemplify equanimity under duress. Tell me about the duress, first in the university and then in the African-American community. I might, by way of introduction, also mention that you are a very distinguished medical doctor and that you as well as having an MD and having practiced medicine, you also have an MBA, Master of Business Administration. Well, thank you. Thanks again for the invitation, a very, very kind um, invitation. You know, the duress that exists today, um, obviously, is a duress that has uh, taken us by an invisible um, enemy, and that is the coronavirus, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, it is a duress, however, that is also overturning and probably unearthing um, many uh, factor and determinant factors of the overall duress in the African-American community. Disproportionately, African-Americans, unfortunately, are dying um, from this disease in grave numbers, numbers for us to be concerned about. And although those numbers are concerning, I actually think that those numbers may be even higher. And that's the type of unearthing that uh, is going to come along with this as we look at that U.S. and why we must meet um, that challenge of providing care, first and foremost, trying to take care of the African-American community, but being ever so vigilant. In some of the states um, where the, the mortality has outstripped the African-American um, proportionate uh, population, it is still a story that I think will unfold to prove to be even worse. In those very states, if you look at the number of 
uh, people who are listed as unknown in terms of ethnicity, it is very high, as high as 27, 30%. And I think when all is said and done and we go back and we count them appropriately, the African-American population uh, mortalities would be even higher. So it's a, it's a huge duress and a challenge that we must face. It is also, isn't it, a, th a fact that the African-American community is more vulnerable with underlying conditions, diabetes, heart, um, uh, hypertension, uh, maybe incipient heart disease, and therefore the, the price is very high if they get the virus. That, that is very correct. Those underlying conditions, as you just point, um, outlined, uh, certainly portend a worse outcome. However, I would hasten to say that we have to be very, very careful when we look at that. Those did not come about by chance. Uh, there's some sociologists um, who I've heard refer to this phenomena as weathering. And what has occurred in the African-American community over time is the weathering, the weathering of stress, the weathering of a system that denies them nutritious food, weathering of a system that denies them transportation to and from work, a weathering that denies them access to excellent health care. That then results in poor outcomes. And those poor outcomes then manifest themselves in diabetes, hypertension, uh, stress. And those things then lead to a higher mortality when you've contracted a virus such as coronavirus. But there are multiple um, areas across uh, the healthcare spectrum where we see this. And in DC in particular, uh, some of it is extremely pronounced because of the different racial uh, makeup of the wards in DC. The second problem in the African-American community today is poverty. Generally, African-Americans are likely to run out of money faster than anyone else. Many of them have very low paying jobs, have been laid off, have no way to get money to buy food. Does that require some sort of special social effort on behalf of government in the society? Yeah, it certainly does. Um, and again, I think to, to, to bring your point home, if you look at Ward 3 in Washington, D.C., which is 95% white, uh, the income level is in excess of 75,000 higher on average, if not over 100,000 higher on average, than the citizens of Ward 8. The Ward 8 racial makeup is 95% black. Now, the life expectancy in Ward 8 is 72 years. The life expectancy of the, their counterparts in Ward 3 is 87.6 years. So it does manifest itself as a measure of wealth and poverty. But the other issue, if you look at it, it creates a vicious cycle. Because if you think of generational wealth, generational opportunity, you think of small businesses, the ability for uh, African-Americans to build a legacy that they can hand down to another generation to employ others um, in their community, it is extremely limited. And then when you have a life expectancy of 72 years, that cuts off years of productivity, years of savings, years of the ability to build that generational wealth. So one feeds on the other. And that cycle has to be broken by social and systemic interventions that allow for a different outcome that then feeds into the social structures that hold up 
the opportunity. Howard University Hospital. How is sure. that preparing? This is a teaching hospital. It's a very important hospital in graduating doctors. Uh, what is it doing and what will its role in the coronavirus be? Uh, we are a designated site for uh, treatment of COVID-19 patients, and we have been doing that right now. Uh, the city has access to expand our capacity by 125%. We're in the process of standing that up right now. Um, that is uh, going well. It's going to be costly. It costs us up to $25 million uh, to be able to get that done, and we're actively doing that. We want to protect our health uh, frontline workers as well, uh, so we're make, ensuring that we have enough PPE and that we have testing available uh, for anybody who is exposed and may want to be tested. Doctor, thank you very much for coming on White House Chronicle. I hope you'll come back many times in the future to report on your work as an educator, but also your work in the community and the progress the hospital is making. Thanks for having me. It is our pleasure. It is the 50th anniversary, or it will be on April 22nd, of the introduction of a concept, the Earth Day. It's Earth Day's birthday, it's 50th birthday this year. I remember clearly the first one. I was working in a, for a nuclear-based publication in Washington, and people were very skeptical when Gaylord Nelson, a senator, introduced the concept of Earth Day. And it followed on almost automatically, if you will, from a new concern for the environment, which got going in 1962 with the publication by Rachel Carson of her seminal book, Silent Spring. So I am delighted now to invite on the broadcast Matthew Banks, who has worked with companies for more than 20 years, guiding them, if you will, into the path of righteousness, the environment. Matthew, welcome to the broadcast. You are a, uh, an, a, a senior executive with Guidehouse, which is one of the leading consultancies, but it's often associated in this program because we have a lot of guests from Guidehouse uh, with just energy. But in fact, you have worked with consumer goods primarily. Tell me about your work, please. Thanks, Llewellyn, and thank you for having me on the program. Uh, appreciate this opportunity to, to share our insights. Um, yes, I have worked uh, on helping uh, large brands, uh, Fortune 250 companies, um, as well as cities uh, over the course of the past um, 20 years as they try to grapple with climate change, uh, set targets, develop uh, plans and actions and abatement measures that are consistent with the science. Um, I was one of a group of folks that came together before the Paris Agreement um, to develop some projects and programs that allow companies to set targets that are more consistent with the science and get recognition at the global level. Matthew, can we drop a couple of names of big companies you worked with so that uh, our viewers and listeners get some idea of what companies are really trying to uh, get on board the environmental movement? Sure. Um, you know, it, it, it spans the likes of uh, many of the big brands that you and I interact with on a regular basis. Um, 
you know, from uh, the major beverage manufacturers like uh, Coca-Cola and PepsiCo, uh, even some quick service restaurants uh, like, like McDonald's, uh, also large pharma giants like Johnson & Johnson. J&J has actually been doing this type of work since the mid-90s. Are we making, what progress are we making in the corporations? To what extent is the environmental ethic now their ethic? So I think that uh, if you were to look at uh, the breadth and depth of that Fortune 250, right? Um, most of those companies have set targets to reduce their emissions uh, to peak and decline over the course of the next decade. Um, we're looking at re reductions on the order of anywhere from 20 to 50% in most cases. Um, and that's on track with, with what Paris is calling for. Um, the, the hard work has just begun. Uh, most of those companies have a target, they have developed a plan, and now they have to execute against that plan. And the, the work of our team focuses mostly on the target development followed by the abatement measures and actions that a company has to take. First and foremost there is renewable energy. Renewable energy is something people think is on the way. We see the windmills, we see the solar panels, uh, we know that there's less coal being burned, etc. But the thing that people raise with me all the time is the very day-to-day -day business of packaging. There is so much of it. And everybody says, oh, I live alone, but I take a bag of garbage out every day or every two days. Uh, is that part of your writ packaging and the impact of that on the environment? Absolutely. So if you take a look at uh, some of the major brands in uh, what's called consumer packaged goods or fast moving consumer goods sector, uh, they're looking at the entire supply chain. So in the case of a beverage manufacturer, for example, uh, you have the supply chain broken up into five categories. So there's ingredients, packaging, manufacturing, refrigeration and transportation or distribution. Those five categories all have a greenhouse gas impact um, from source to store to landfill. And, and packaging is one of, those, one of those things that has the biggest impact. In the case of many of those beverage manufacturers, it's packaging and refrigeration that have the two largest impacts. So uh, folks are looking for what uh, are being called circular solutions in a circular economy um, we would be using packaging that has uh, circular value. Um, and the best way to improve circularity is to improve collect collection rate. And so most of those manufacturers are looking at improving the collection rate or changing the packaging altogether um, to find things that uh, are recyclable, uh, either recyclable or um, biodegradable. I do remember when McDonald's took a huge step forward by getting rid of the clamshells, which had a, a useful life of about three minutes, put the hammer, sure. sell it. It was a very abusive use in a way of a very nice thing to get your hamburger in. Uh, but I thought it was quite a step forward when they went to paper. Uh, is that the kind of evolution that's taking place? 
And how important is the symbolic Earth Day to these endeavors? Yeah, I, where we're going is interesting because we have just experienced this massive shock to the system of, of the pandemic. And as we recover from the pandemic, uh, this has had an incredible impact on, on our lives, on people, on the health system, on the food system, on the economy. Um, and these are all connected. And this is the first time, I think, in, in my lifetime, many people's lifetime, that we've seen this connection in stark relief more than any other crisis that we've been through um, more than 9-11 more than the financial crisis um, more than you know some of the conflicts that we've seen around the world uh, or even that Americans have been involved in and so just like flattening the curve uh, that that phrase that we've seen used throughout this uh, pandemic we all need to work together to revitalize the economy um, when the stay-at-home orders are, are relaxed. Uh, and that needs to be sensitized, sensitized a great deal to climate and resilience. Our climate crisis is a threat to all those systems that I listed. And without addressing the risks, it could have a sustained impact to those systems in a profound way that um, is consistent with what we've seen during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, it'll, it will affect people, it'll affect health, it'll affect food, it'll affect the economy. Um, so this, this is an important moment in time. You folks have talked about this being the great pause. And I think on this Earth Day, we need to think about how that um, bounce back or rebound from the great pause can be done in a way that responds to the climate crisis. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the broadcast and good luck with what is, in fact, in my view, your noble work. We go now to Jan Brins in Florida, Miami to be exact, who has played a major role as a consultant at Guidehouse, also from Guidehouse, in directing utilities to what I have called the path of virtue uh, towards a more environmentally sensitive, sustainable future. Uh, he's worked very hard. He brings a lot of insight, having done the same work in Holland and then in Central and South America, and now for many years in the United States. Jan, welcome to the broadcast. Thank next, you, Llewellyn. Next week, the 22nd of April is Earth Day. What does it mean to you? Yeah, Earth Day is 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 a, a very important day for me and and for for my entire team. Uh, as you know, uh, we help our clients, uh, whether they are utilities, energy companies, um, large corporations, or governments, with building um, um, more resilient and more sustainable communities uh, and infrastructure. So Earth Day is a big day for us. You're the segment leader on sustainability at Guidehouse, so you have. A, a very large portfolio uh, and a very challenging one. Over the decades, I've seen electric utilities go from great skepticism about the environment to something very close nowadays to enthusiasm. Is that a journey that you have traced and influenced? Yes, ab absolutely. I, I think even even five years ago, utilities were kind of um, uh, in, uh, you know in, in a wait and see mode with regard to climate with regard to decarbonization and i think nowadays uh, most utilities if not all llewellyn 
have really embraced uh, the topic of decarbonization and, and climate change and working with their customers, whether it's local governments or cities or large corporations or, you know, residential customers on this, uh, on helping, you know, decarbonize our economies, which is, uh, which is exciting. Moving forward, what do you think the electric utilities will gain from this pause? There's a couple of things that uh, hopefully utilities uh, are thinking about and, and acting upon. One is definitely um, in terms of you know resiliency. How can we build more resiliency into our system? We need to keep the lights on despite um, you know what's going on right now, including um, you know tornadoes, right? That that put almost like 1.3 million customers this week out of power, including earthquakes in the northwest uh, that we had a month ago. Um, so I think I think utilities are learning even more about resiliency. Um, traditionally, you know, uh, utility assets has, have been assets that, that need, you know, uh, human intervention, crews to go out there to um, read the meter or to fix a, 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 a break. Um, I, I think we'll see more advanced technologies where some of this uh, maintenance and repair can be done remotely uh, as well, which is, which is very interesting. So that's one. And then two, I really think that um, uh, after we, we deal with COVID and it can take a while we also look at, you know, what I call the other, you know, gray rhino out there and, and, and gray rhino are, you know, uh, likely events and we have, have had signals and have huge impact on our economy. We still have climate change as a big threat out there uh, to uh, society and the world at large. And I hope, I hope utilities and all their stakeholders, and we're certainly he hearing a lot uh, of that right now, will really, you know, uh, increase the urgency on, on that big threat as well, uh, which is still uh, ahead of us. Do you believe that we can somehow head off the rise in sea level? You know a lot about that as a native-born Dutchman. Uh, we always think that the Nederlanders know what to do about the oceans. Do you think we can head off the kind of threat which is now posed for the whole of the east coast of the united states and part of the west coast which is simple sea level rise yeah it will it will be a big challenge um in, in the netherlands we built you know as you know dikes for many centuries and we protected ourselves against you know uh, the, the sea i'm now in miami as you said actually very close to the to the to the ocean here i can actually see it from my uh, from my other room here um, but in Florida, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it's a lot harder to build like dikes because the water would come underneath um, because we have the Everglades and, 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 the, and the rock formation underneath will not allow uh, dikes to protect us against, against the ocean. Now, there's other technologies that will help in terms of how we move water around. Uh, the, the most important things, and we've seen actually the impact of, of how drastically we can change course here in the last, you know, uh, uh, three to four weeks. Um, we, we just need to reduce uh, carbon emission reductions. We have to change the course of climate change. And in the last four weeks, we've seen several examples of cleaner air um, and uh, what it does in terms of carbon dioxide in the air, which, which you know, we can turn around in, in, you know, in a matter of weeks, basically, uh, is what we've seen in the, last, uh, in, in the last period of time. Well, this has been very exciting, hasn't it? It's unfortunate that it took yes. a disaster. But to see clear air in Mumbai, in Los Angeles, uh, this is incredible. To be able to look into the Venice Harbor, into the, 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 the lagoon in Venice and see fish, this is incredible. It it's, to me reminds me of another great environmental achievement, and that was the British cleaning up the Thames. There are now fish where for 
300 years, there was no life in the pool of London, the bottom end of the Thames where the docks were. Now it's full of life. Uh, it can be done. When I lived in England in the early 1960s, there were fogs that you couldn't see. You had to get out of your car and hold a stranger's hand to, to get to the sidewalk. They're gone. They cleaned yeah. up the air. It can be done. Isn't that the message of today? It is. It's Yes, it can be done. And it's also exciting to see how we all come together. Um, we're all connected. Uh, uh, countries are connected. Economies are connected. Uh, the utilities industry is connected with transportation. It's connected to the environment and, and, and to, the, to the world at large. Uh, and I think once we realize that, that all these things are connected and, and jointly we can attack these, you know, significant threats and big, big uh, problems that we face. Um, it's, it's extremely exciting. These are sad times, uh, but we're seeing some really good examples of how we're in this together and can solve and work through these, these very large issues that we face as uh, well. That's very interesting and exciting. And you are a very exciting man in an exciting place, helping a bit like a ship's pilot, helping the utilities find the channel. Would that be a reasonable description? Uh, well, I, I appreciate the description. Uh, yeah, we, we like to um, help our clients navigate all the different challenges that are in front of them. Some are short term, um, uh, some are you know longer term, some are really far out there. But yeah, navigating through all these changes uh, as the energy uh, industry is transitioning is uh, is something we are really passionate about, and, and I personally you know care a lot about. Jan, you have an example from India as well, one of your own. Yeah, I uh, I, I posted actually uh, this on on social media this week. I saw a picture that someone took from about 200 kilometers, so a little over 100 miles away from the Himalaya. And um, uh, you could actually see during the day the mountain uh, tops, uh, which is really exciting. Normally, uh, it was a big city in, in India. You would not be able to see. And, 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 and now with all the pollution down, uh, you had a clear view of, of, of the mountains there, which is, uh, which is pretty impressive. What, uh, what a couple of weeks of reduced manufacturing um, and transportation uh, carbon emission uh, expulsion will, will, will do. So what we have to do is concentrate on reducing those emissions while returning to normal productivity. Absolutely. And there are technologies and there are solutions available now that can do that. Uh, and that's the, the exciting part. Technology continues to be uh, helping us and, and innovation is important. Uh, you talk a lot about innovation as well. And as long as we keep innovating and, and apply the technology solutions that, that currently exist, we can do all of the above, above. We can recover, we can rebuild and build a more resilient and sustainable uh, economy, infrastructure and, and, and communities around the world. I find that hugely encouraging. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Safe travels and stay, uh, stay healthy. Cheers. That's our show for today. Thank you for coming along. Today we had a look at what is happening in the minority community in the time of coronavirus. Then we moved on to looking at the environment, which we note this year uh, on the eve of the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. That's our show for today. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy 
full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.